Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Robots Radio presents... In 1985, director John Hughes guaranteed that the world would not forget about a group of misunderstood teenagers. In 2020, we finish off a flight of Irish whiskey. The film is The Breakfast Club. The whiskey is Jameson Caskmates Stout. And we'll review them both. This is... The The Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we're looking at the 1985 teen classic, The Breakfast Club. Brad, how you doing today, man? I'm doing really well. It's uh, it's a little early in the morning, but I'm excited to get into this whiskey and see where the day takes us. We are breaking all the rules of society and drinking this whiskey at the crack of dawn. That's right. No better breakfast than, than Irish whiskey. Yeah, I mean, if this is based on like a breakfast stout, then hey, let's go. This is the breakfast for the breakfast club. That's right. Hey, I I mean, they're smoking weed. We're drinking whiskey. What what could go wrong? (laughs) It's a party over here at Film and Whiskey today. So, so Brad, I'm really curious. This is an incredibly popular movie. I mean, I feel like in some ways, this should almost be required viewing for everybody that's in high school. Like, This was such a big part of my teenage years. It's been such a big part of so many people's teenage years for 35 years now. So I have to ask, but I think I know the answer. Brad, have you ever seen this movie prior to this viewing? I have seen this movie. I saw it when I was in high school. I think we watched it in psychology or something like that. And then I think I've seen it one time since. So this would be my third viewing of the film. Okay, so you have a pretty good base of knowledge for this movie. I think the first time I ever saw this is when it was on one of its endless runs on TV. They used to show it on AMC all the time and then on VH1 all the time. And you know, this is a very R-rated movie, and it got kind of heavily edited down for TV. And you know, I've only seen the unedited version a few times. And to be honest, I kind of forgot about a lot of the really controversial and cringy stuff that's in it that I think we're going to have to deal with at some point. But Brad, when you watched this movie, have you always seen like the unedited version or have you been used to the version we've gotten on TV over the years? Well, I'm 95% certain that our teacher would not have shown us the R-rated version (laughs) in class. Yeah, Um, But the second time through, I watched it on Netflix, which I believe would be the unedited version. Okay, so this movie was written and directed by John Hughes, who has become famous as kind of the filmmaker, the writer, the director who cataloged the life of the American teenager in the 1980s. And I think John Hughes is a really interesting kind of case study in movie history because he's one of the first people that I think really took the American teenager seriously, at least over the course of multiple movies. You know, you had movies like American Graffiti by George Lucas or coming of age movies like The Graduate that dealt with people who were in their 
late teens, early 20s. But John Hughes really wrote with the voice of the teenager. He wrote comedies. You know, he did Ferris Bueller. He did 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink. And then he also did more serious material like The Breakfast Club. And I think what's unique about John Hughes is that they're making movies for teenagers, but they're not kind of condescending or demeaning to teenagers. When you look back over the course of American movie history, you know, films that were made for teenagers were just money grabs. And, you know, you had your like Frankie and Annette movies and these beach party movies. John Hughes really kind of changed the narrative on what a teenager movie can be. And I think we're kind of still seeing the fruit of that today. Yeah, Bob, it's interesting to see how movies have matured over the years. But honestly, I'm actually kind of struggling to think of movies that take teenagers super seriously in the modern era. Uh, Can you enlighten me on what some of those films might be? Well, I think that some of them do it better than others. But one that I would point to would be the the kind of recent movie, uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower. I really, really loved that movie. I hope we get to it someday on the podcast, because I think that is a movie that's made in the vein of a John Hughes movie. But you also have movies like uh, Miles Teller's movie, uh, The Spectacular Now. And I think even some of these movies that are based off young adult novels like The Fault in Our Stars, they all owe a debt of gratitude towards John Hughes and what he did for kind of legitimizing movies about teenagers. Yeah, I think that what, you know, Hughes's movies really did was they gave teenagers an opportunity to watch a film and say, yeah, that is how I feel about the world. That is the frustrations that I have, you know, with The Breakfast Club specifically. I'm sure that millions of teenagers saw this movie and said to themselves, man, uh, yeah, my parents don't understand me. They they come from a different era and they don't really get the pressures that I have in school and with friends and in my life. And so when you watch these Hughes films, I think that they shine, you know, they're they're at their best when they are delving into what's going on in the lives of a teenager. Absolutely. And I think that's a really good way to put it, Brad, because there are some really, really high peaks in this movie. And when when Hughes is taking the characters seriously and when he's writing in the voice of these teenagers, you're right. He really is kind of putting into words things that, you know, even me as a teenager that I don't think I could articulate or that I could voice about my frustrations. And then I I see it in The Breakfast Club and I'm like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. But then there's other points, even in this movie, and I, I hope you kind of feel the same way, where I think Hughes just kind of goes for like the silly punchline or like the lowest common denominator. And it seems like this movie in particular, even more than like a Ferris Bueller, it goes from like comedy to weird sort of like music video style editing to really serious drama. And there's kind of no rhyme or reason to a lot of it. And so I'm really kind of struggling with watching this movie now as an adult, Brad, because I don't know if it holds up as well as I expected it to hold up. Well, I think that I I had the same thoughts as I was watching, you know, The Breakfast Club. And I I think I've realized that Hughes is trying to capture the silliness of what it is to be a teenager, that they're still just kids, that they still just like to have fun and jump around and scream so that glass shatters. And, and, And so there's parts of it that make sense. You know, the parts of them running around the hallways, I think it goes on way too long. But it does kind of have that feeling of teenage mischief of like these kids are silly and they do silly things. Uh, But I think Hughes goes way too far with it at times. And I think it takes away from the deeper, more serious moments of the movie when you have things like Emilio Estevez screaming so loud that the glass shatters in the door. Like certain things just don't really make sense. 
Well, maybe we should hit pause right now, Brad, and, and kind of go back to what we call our favorite segment on the show. And this segment is called Brad Explains. You know, in a lot of instances, this is Brad's first time viewing the movie that we're talking about. But I'm actually really excited to hear this week's because, Brad, you've seen this movie enough that I think you can give a really, really great explanation. Can you break down with spoilers the plot of the movie The Breakfast Club? Yeah. So they are at, I, I believe it's called Shermer High School in Shermer, mm. Illinois, is the opening dialogue. And there are five kids, uh, ostensibly teenagers, although a few of them do not look young enough to be teenagers. But that's besides <laughs> the point. Right. Uh, these five teenagers are in high school and they've all been gathered on a Saturday morning for apparently nine hours of detention, which is a really long time for detention. Apparently they did things differently back in the 80s. But they're all gathered together on this Saturday and the entire movie is them, uh, the principal, uh, Richard Vernon, who looks over them and a janitor who's busy cleaning the school. And the entire day is spent observing these five kids as they all come from different uh, friend groups. You know, you have the jock and you have the teen drama queen and you have the crazy girl and you have the rebel and you have the smart kid. And they all come from these different social groups. And the entire movie is about how they slowly form relationships throughout the day as they break down the barriers between them that really are false barriers created by their own, you know, misimpressions of one another. And so it just follows their antics throughout the day. It shows how the principal is kind of a harsh uh, totalitarian trying to crack down on them and mold them into an image that he would enjoy. Um, but by the end of the movie, you kind of realize that he's just as scared as the rest of them about being known. So there you go. That's The Breakfast Club. Don't you forget about me, Bob. <laughs> oh, man. At some point, we got to talk about the soundtrack because that song, that song might actually be the best part of the whole movie, Brad, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah, I won't disagree. And I, I don't know how everybody in Film and Whiskey Nation feels. I personally do not think that the 80s was a great era for music. And like, yes, there was a lot of good stuff. Like, I do like ACDC and Metallica and a few other things from that era, you know, Journey and the, the likes. But overall... I did not like a single song in this movie outside of Don't You Forget About Me. Yeah, and actually, Brad, I, I kind of agree. I think especially like pop music in the 80s is really hit or miss. But you're right. And I think it's because the lyrics of all of these songs are so on the nose. And John Hughes like puts them in at very specific points of the movie. And I think that they none of them work. Like we were talking earlier about there's a scene where they all break out of detention and they're like running down the hall trying to avoid the principal. And it's like this old, you know, vaudevillian style, like, whoa, like they, they come around the corner and <laughs> they have to go back. And it's like it goes on way too long. But it's also shot and edited like a music video. And it almost it seems like something they would use for like a promo for the movie. And moments like that and then moments like that weird extended dance sequence after they all get high where they're like they've apparently all learned how to do synchronized dances with each other. It's like. It it completely takes me out of the world that the movie is trying to build. And I think part of it is just the filmmaking. And part of it is these really, really not great songs that they're using as well. Yeah. And I think that, honestly, every time I see this movie, I think to myself, man, I'll bet you that this movie was really great in 1985. Because I think about the 80s and I think about the rise of MTV and music videos and what was going on in that era. 
And I'm sure that for somebody who was 13, 14 to 19, 20, you know, those teenage years that that saw this film in 1985, I am sure that they resonated deeply with this movie. However, it just doesn't resonate as much for me, somebody who's born in 1990. And as a modern viewer, I look back, I don't think that a lot of parts of this movie have aged very well. Yeah, and I think we're, we're definitely going to get into some of that. I don't know if I necessarily agree with some of what you say, Brad. Like, I think that the parts of the movie that were bad filmmaking were probably still bad filmmaking in 1985. I do think that there's definitely something that comes with an age gap, though, because like when I was a teenager, I think I was willing to forgive some of the sillier or more badly made parts of the movie because of that one really great 20 minute sequence where they all get real with each other. And I think as an adult, I'm looking more at the movie as a whole and like I can't forgive everything to the extent that I did before. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. So maybe this is a good time for us before we get into talking about the problematic elements, the things that haven't held up well. Let's talk about these five main characters. And I guess you could even say six or seven if you include the principal and the janitor. But I specifically want to zero in on our five protagonists here. And let's talk about the performances of these young actors. Yeah, Bob, I mean, I think we could start right off the top with Judd Nelson. You know, he if there could be a main character in this movie, I feel like John Bender might be it. So I'm kind of curious, how did you feel about his performance in this film? You know, it's really funny because Bender has become such an iconic kind of character in cinema. And yet Judd Nelson, I think, runs the whole spectrum of like there are scenes where he's way over the top and it's like way too much. And then there are scenes where he's really, I think, doing the character a a service and he's he's playing it as he should play it. And so it's kind of hard because I think at the end of the day, if I'm being honest with you, there might just be a little too much Bender in this movie. His his kind of character change doesn't come until so late in the movie that you start to see every other character change and then Bender is still being Bender. And I think his antics got on my nerves a lot more than they used to because he's such he's so abusive. He's so manipulative. And we'll talk about some of the more problematic things he does, but he, he's like literally engaging in sexual assault and harassment. And like, I think that the performance is good. And it's memorable. And I'm struggling to to piece together whether it's just that Judd Nelson overdid it at parts or whether he or whether his character is just in the movie too much. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same spot, Bob. I feel like he overacts almost every scene that he's in. He's he's just really chewing up scenery and pushing through these lines with almost like a smarminess that obviously needed to be there, but Man, it's it just gets old really fast. And and I think for for him, he he kind of represents one of the reasons that I get tired of the 80s film standby of like sticking it to the man and you know, we're just going to be rebels and I just really struggle with those characters because after a while they just wear thin. There's there's not much authenticity to them. You know, it just feels like they keep rebelling and rebelling and rebelling, but there's not much substance behind who they really are. And that's a struggle for me. Now, Bender's not always like that. You know, you get the stories of how, you know, his dad is abusive and emotionally and physically abusive. And you start to learn that there's more to him. But like you said, Bob, I don't know if he actually changes very much in the movie as much as he just tries to force everyone else to become more like him. 
Yeah. And I think that Bender works best when John Hughes is using him to kind of play other characters off each other. Like I'm thinking specifically of the one scene where he's interrogating like everybody else about what kind of clubs they're in. And Claire's talking about how he needs to be in some clubs. And he points out that Brian is in the physics club. I'm in the physics club, too. Excuse me a sec. What are you babbling about? Well, what I'd said was I'm in a math club. Uh, the Latin club and the physics club. Physics club. Hey. Jerry. Do you belong to the physics club? That's an academic club. So? So academic clubs aren't the same as other kinds of clubs. Ah, but the dorks like him, they are. What do you guys do in your club? In physics, well, we, we, uh... We talk about physics, uh, properties of physics. So it's sort of social, demented and sad, but social. And I think when they're using Bender to kind of point out the hypocrisy of other people, his character works a lot better because he's not the focus of attention. And I think when they like put the camera on Bender and he has these extended over the top monologues of like, you know, smoke up, son, like it, it just becomes a little too much for me. And I think we could have used more of Bender interacting with other people than just Bender going on these like Shakespearean monologues. Yeah, honestly, it kind of reminds me of like Nick Offerman and Parks and Rec. Like Ron Swanson is spectacular in that TV show. But if he was the main focus of the show, it would just be too much. Yeah. You know, the, and there's certain characters that directors need to know that just because the character is ridiculous and over the top doesn't mean you necessarily need more of them. If anything, it means you should just get them in little doses here and there so that you're left wanting more of them throughout the film. I will say that every character in this movie has at least one really great line, and Bender gets a lot of really good lines. He gets a lot of crap, too, but I think he gets a lot of really good lines, and some of the insults are really, really great. Like when he uh, first says to Andy that he... <laughs> He uh, he wants to be a wrestler, and he says, "I figure I can be just like you. All I need is a lobotomy and some tights." <laughs> it's just it's such a good <laughs> line. So I have to get at least one positive thing in there for Bender before we move on. So why don't we move to Ali Sheedy's character of Allison? Now she is kind of the girl that we would consider to be like you know in today's terminology almost like a goth. She's really quiet. She only for the first twenty minutes or so of the movie she only like squeaks. It's very weird. And her character is maybe the most problematic character for me in the movie. And I think we'll get into that maybe later in the analysis. But she's not given a lot to do in the movie. But I was really impressed with the way that she made her presence known. Like when she got a line, she did a really great job with it, I thought. What did you think of her performance? Well, I was watching I was watching the movie and I, I was like, man, I know I've seen her somewhere else. And I realized that if you've watched the TV show Psych... She plays a terrifying, mentally insane character in that show that has some of the best episodes of television I've ever seen. And so she she has this ability to be creepy. She has this ability to come across as just slightly off kilter mentally, and it creates such a compelling performance. I, I actually really enjoyed her in this movie. Now, I do think that the script gives her a lot of problems that, like you said, Bob, it makes her a problematic character, especially in 2020. 
But overall, if you just look at her performance, I think she is one of the most captivating performers on the screen. Oh, for sure. And I actually think that, you know, in my notes, I wrote this down. I think that she makes that character work in spite of the script and not because of it. John Hughes does everything he can to make this almost like a caricature. Like every everybody gets their little sort of character quirks and idiosyncrasies. But the ones that they give to her are like... This isn't even a human being like she squeaks instead of talking. She draws a picture and then decides to put snow on it and shakes dandruff onto it. And it's like, my gosh, dude, like, can't you think of a better way to bring about some character development than to just show us like, whoa, look how weird she is. And look, she's a kleptomaniac. And I think that when she finally starts talking, she makes that character work and it shouldn't work. And specifically, I'm thinking about one of the best lines in the whole movie where she's talking about, you know, when you grow up, your heart dies, which is kind of a cheesy line. But Bender just kind of goes, who cares? My God, are we going to be like our parents? Not me. Ever. It's unavoidable. Just happens. What happens? When you grow up. Heart dies. Who cares? I care. And they cut back to her, and she's like choking back tears, and she's like, I care. Mm -hmm. And she made that line delivery work, and that shouldn't work. She's so good in this movie, and I feel like she's kind of underappreciated because she's not used very much, but she's knocking it out of the park, I think, in every moment that she's on screen. Yeah, and another character that we get to spend the entire day with is Andy, the wrestler, you know, played by Emilio Estevez. And he is a frustrating character for me because he kind of just goes back and forth between trying to be super macho and impressing, you know, Claire. And yet he tries to, like, backtrack himself and be be soft and caring at times. And, and I kind of struggle with him as a character on the whole. You know what? I haven't actually given a lot of thought to his character until now because you're right. Like, he doesn't really change all that much. I think some of his underlying insecurities and his anger at having to put on this macho facade, that really comes out. And I think his character really thrives on being able to show his vulnerability. But in terms of people who have like a really profound paradigm shift, I don't think his character really does. And yet I do think that Emilio Estevez does a really good job in this role. You know, when I went into watching the movie, I was thinking like, wasn't he way too old to be playing a high schooler? But he was only like 22 or 23. And I was kind of shocked to see him look that young. But I thought that he really convincingly kind of towed that line between I'm a muscle bound man, but I'm also still a kid. And I still have these feelings of like pressure from my dad. And I actually really, really enjoyed him in this film. <laughs> See, I guess my struggle is when I think about Emilio Estevez in this movie, all I can think about is him running in a circle on the second level of the library, <laughs> jumping over things and doing somersaults. And it's one of the yeah. worst pieces of filmmaking I think I've ever seen. I, I don't understand yeah. why he's doing it. And honest, I, this might sound bad, but that one scene really ruined a lot of his performance for me. Well, I, so first of all, I think you can put the blame for that on John Hughes. Like, I, I just don't think any of that scene is necessary. And to be honest with you, like the whole weed smoking element of the movie, I think, is really weird because they're in like an unventilated room. It, it should be very clear to everyone that walks into that room that they've all been smoking weed. But like Emilio Estevez smokes weed and then he comes out 
and he's like, woo, woo, woo. And he, and he runs around the, the upstairs. And I'm like, were you smoking weed or were you doing like lines of cocaine? Because <laughs> this, you're not behaving as if you've just been smoking weed. So like, I, I totally understand, but I don't think that that scene takes away from Estevez's performance. I think it's just a scene that should have been cut from the movie. And I think that's more on Hughes than it is on the actor. Yeah, I, I I would agree with you, Bob. It's just sad that that scene got included because it does shade my view of his performance. And and the thing is, his performance was great when he wasn't being ridiculous. I, I think he was a really interesting character. And so, yeah, I, I would agree with you, Bob. He He does turn in a very good, convincing performance of what it's like to be an athlete in a household where a lot is expected of athletes. Yeah. And I mean, he really is the bridge into getting into the more emotional material. Like he starts talking about, do you know why I'm here before anyone else does? And Hughes has that really great sort of dollying tracking camera that goes in a circle around the whole group. And it's an unbroken shot, really. I mean, there might be a couple cutaways to reactions, but for the most part, Estevez is doing that in, in what looks like one take. And I think he really brings the goods when he's delivering that monologue. So, yeah, I mean, is his character the best formed the best written? Probably not. But I don't have a fault with what he did as an actor. Well, and this kind of takes us to our final of the teenage actors, you know, and and one of the most famous of them all, Molly Ringwald. You know, she was was just so popular for her role in mostly John Hughes films in the 80s. And I, you know, her performance in this film, I would say is is pretty impressive. Bob, I'm kind of curious to hear what you have to say about her. Yeah, Brad, I'm actually really glad that we saved these last two actors for the last two, because I I think I was most impressed with their performances with Anthony Michael Hall as Brian and with Molly Ringwald. I think Molly Ringwald doesn't get a lot of credit as an actress as the years go on. I think she's she's kind of seen as someone who defined a moment in movie history like she was the girl next door. She was the John Hughes sort of muse. She was in three movies that he made. But in this movie in particular, I was blown away by some of her acting abilities. Like when Bender is really lighting into her when she when they're all sitting up in that circle and he's going in on like, where'd you get those earrings, Claire? I bet you didn't have to work for those. I bet daddy bought them for you. And he starts talking about your drunk mom in the Caribbean. You know, I have just as many feelings as you do, and it hurts just as much when somebody steps all over them. God, you're so pathetic. Don't you ever, ever compare yourself to me, okay? You got everything, and I got shit. Fucking Rapunzel, right? School would probably fucking shut down if you didn't show up. Queenie isn't here. I like those earrings, Claire. Shut up. Are those real diamonds, Claire? Shut up. I bet they are. Did you work for the money? Shut for those earrings? your mouth. Or did your daddy buy those? Shut you? up! I bet he bought those for you. I bet those were a Christmas gift, right? You know what I got for Christmas this year? It was a banner fucking year at the old Bender family. I got a carton of cigarettes. The old man grabbed me and said, hey, smoke up, Johnny. Okay, so go home and cry to your daddy. Don't cry here, okay? Watching her internalize and and kind of like retreat back into herself, watching the tears well up in her eyes, her ability to play emotion. I really loved what she did with the character of Claire, because aside from Bender, Claire is probably the least sympathetic character in terms of like who she is. She's uh, she's a spoiled brat and she knows that she's popular when she's smoking weed. The first thing she says is like, do you guys know how popular I am at this school? 
And yet she takes a character that I don't sympathize with at all. And I think she really gives it some emotional weight when she's going on her long monologue about, I hate having to go along with everything my friends say. It's like, it's not something that I really related to, but even then she gives the sort of popular girl a backstory and, you know, some some challenges and some weight that it, I think it's hard to pull off as an actress. And she does it really well. Yeah. And I think that that actually, for me, is one of the key elements of this movie, you know, because right after she kind of delivers that speech, um, Brian, played by Anthony Michael Hall, he kind of he basically is like, like, those are your problems. Those are the things you struggle with. And I think that the the message of this movie isn't that certain people have it worse off than others. It's that each of us have problems that are our own. You know, one of the popular things that you've heard said, I I guarantee you all of us have heard said is like, oh, yeah, first world problems. And so when I think about that message in this movie, like, sure, these kids might be experiencing a lot of first world problems, even Bender, who seems to have it the worst off of the five. I think the message of this movie is that Sure, some people might have it worse off than others, but each of us experiences only our own life. And our problems are very real to us. You know, and Emilio Estevez's problems are his own. Molly Ringwald's problems are her own. And that we all have these struggles and that the only way we can kind of move past our stereotypes of one another is if we listen to each other, if we care enough to say, yeah, that, that, those are real problems. And even if I can't relate to them, I, I understand that you experience them deeply. And, and I think that her character best personifies that kind of worldview in this film. Yeah, absolutely, Brad. And before we go to our break, let's get to the last of these young actors, which would be Anthony Michael Hall as Brian. Who is actually the only actor in this movie who was young enough to be... In high school, he was 17 years old when this movie is being filmed. And I think that he helps the movie in so many ways. But one of the ways that he helps the most is just the fact that he looks so young. You know, one of my struggles with this movie is the fact that all of the teenagers do not look like teenagers. And it's because they aren't. But Brian is actually played by someone who is 17, should be in high school. And I think he injects a youthfulness to the movie that is very much so needed. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the most underrated things about Anthony Michael Hall is that he is legitimately a really, really good comedian. Like his comic timing in this movie is excellent. He had worked with John Hughes before in uh, 1983 on National Lampoon's Vacation, where he played the son Rusty, and he's great in that movie. But the early stages of this movie rely on a few things. It, it relies on creating that sense of unease between these these groups that are represented. It relies on creating a sense of boredom as they don't know what to do. But you need some comic relief in there to kind of break up these confrontations that are happening. And Anthony Michael Hall's line deliveries are so good. And it, he's really underrated. When Vernon walks in and says, like, you all need to sit here and think about whether you want to be here next week. And he just kind of goes like, well, well, I can tell you right now, sir, that would be a, a no from me. <laughs> like, I, I just I laugh out loud like he gets asked by Bender, did your uh, did your mom marry Mr. Rogers? And he's like, no, no, Mr. Johnson. <laughs> he's so good. And I think that he's like the unsung hero of this movie, because in my opinion, Brad, the first half of this movie especially is like pretty bad. There's there's a lot of stuff in that first 45 minutes that are just it drags and 
I don't understand some of the filmmaking decisions and and kind of the one saving grace in that part of the movie is Anthony Michael Hall. Yeah, Bob, I'm really happy that you enjoyed his performance because as I was watching this movie, I thought to myself, man, he is the youngest person on screen. And yet I can't get enough of him in this movie. He is the one who really draws them all together in my mind as far as being a sympathetic bunch. You know, he's very I guess he's just so sincere in his performance that I just really am blown away by how funny he is. And even yet, you know, when he starts talking about how he's friends with the boy that Andy taped his butt cheeks together and and how much that hurt him. And when he talks at the end of the film about having a gun and wanting to kill himself, you just kind of look at it and you go, man, like this is the character that I feel like is the most empathetic of them all. And I really, Mm. really love his performance. Yeah. And right before that, too, there's this great little touch where he's the one that asks, like, what happens on Monday? Like, are we all still friends on Monday? And when Claire says no, they cut to his reaction. And that's when he starts crying. And you can tell how hurt he is, like how hurt that character is that he feels like he finally made some personal connections. Like he finally has some friends in school and and now the popular girl is is turning him down again. And I think those little touches, it's not just with Anthony Michael Hall, it's with all the characters that get moments like that. I think that's where this movie really thrives. And so, Brad, I'm excited to get into drinking our whiskey today. But when we come back from the break, I want to talk about what really works in this movie and what really doesn't work in this movie. We've gone through the acting performances, but I think it's time for us to really kind of dissect where we have problems with the film, because I think a lot of it works and then some of it doesn't hold up. But before we get there, let's take a break and let's try this Jameson Caskmates Stout. What do you say? Let's get to it. So today we are checking out Jameson Caskmates Stout. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know that we have gone through this sampler of Jameson products, which included the regular standard Jameson. And then it included these two uh, other expressions that they call Caskmates, which are finished in beer barrels. Uh, The first one was the IPA, which is something that Brad and I didn't particularly care for. I'm not an IPA drinker myself, and neither is Brad. So that really sort of bitter, hoppy flavor I don't think did a lot of favors to the Jameson whiskey, but I am excited to get into this stout because I like dark beers. I like beers that have those those kind of chocolatey, really heavy notes to them. And I think that that will really pair well with the Irish whiskey, which we always kind of describe as a lighter, uh, brighter kind of whiskey. So, Brad, um, have you ever tried this Caskmates stout before? I have not. And I will say I I really hate IPAs, so it was no surprise to me that I didn't enjoy their, that version of the Caskmates. However, I, I enjoy darker beers, but it's one of those things where oftentimes they're so rich and creamy that I can only have like half a glass of the beer and I'm done. It's, you know, it's like a really heavy, rich cheesecake that you have mm-hmm. like three or four bites of it and you have to wait like a half an hour before you take another bite because it's just so rich on your palate and in your stomach. And so I'm actually really excited to try almost a filtered down version of a stout where you get the flavor of it, 
But without that heaviness, I really think that Jameson might be the perfect thing to pair it with. Well, let's get into it, Brad. Why don't you tell me what it is that you're picking up on the nose of this Caskmates stout? Yeah, honestly, I, I get a little bit of that lightness. That, like, it definitely smells like Jameson. And I, I think that that's a good thing. It's bright. Um, there's a little bit of floral to it. But there, I, I sense a little bit of that chocolatiness that you were talking about, Bob. There, There's kind of this this deeper, fruity, chocolatey feel to it that I'm really excited to get into. Yeah, see, for me, I I get some of that chocolatey profile, but it has almost like, it reminds me more of the red breast that we drank than it does Jameson. It almost smells scotchy. It has a really sort of malty scent to it, but also not sweet. I'm not picking up a lot of sweetness on this, and I'm kind of bummed out about that because I thought that this would basically smell like Jameson plus, you know, chocolate and oats or something like that. And I'm not really getting that. So I'm not super impressed with this nose, Brad. I think I'm actually only going to give this one a five and a half. Ooh, man. Yeah, I'm going to give this an eight on the nose. I really enjoy this nose a lot, and I'm excited to get into the taste. Well, let's give it a sip, Brad. Huh. That's interesting. There's not as much going on at the front of my tongue as I thought there would be. No. Same thing with me. I, you know, I've actually tried this before, and I was really excited to have this on the show because of that line in the sampler. I liked this one the best when I first tried it. But trying it again now, I'm actually not a huge, huge fan of this. It's really sweet on the front of your tongue. I get some butterscotch kind of notes, and that's why it's almost like a really watery scotch in some ways to me. And then on the back end, you get the stout flavor. You get really, really dark chocolate notes, maybe some dried fruit, maybe some like, I don't know what it would be like, like craisins, like cranberry, but it's not really complex. And it seems like it's kind of evenly divided between like on the front of my tongue, it's sweet Irish whiskey on the back of my tongue. It's like stout and dark chocolate. And there doesn't seem to be a lot of those flavors marrying together, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with your analysis, Bob, but I'm actually enjoying both elements a little more than it sounds like you are. I think I'm going to give it a six and a half on the taste. You know, it is sweet up front, but there's not enough complexity. You know, it's not as as forward in its complexity as I hoped it would be. But the back end of it, you do have some different things going on as far as the chocolate and kind of oatiness that I'm really enjoying. So I'm going to give it a six and a half on the taste, and I think I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the finish. Yeah, I'm actually also going to give it a six and a half on the taste, Brad. I, I do like the taste. It just it has too much of like a division for me. And with the finish, it's not dry. It definitely is a mouthwatering finish, but it's very oaky. And I think maybe that extra finish in beer barrels did something to bring out more pronounced wood flavors in this. So it's it's kind of bitter and it's not bitter in like a cocoa chocolate way. It's like you get the dark chocolate, but then you also get, for me at least, a ton of oak on the finish. And I don't care for that. So I'm actually only going to give it a five and a half on the finish. And that brings us to overall balance. This is where we talk about nose, taste, and finish all put together. You know, whether or not something stood out as incredibly bad or incredibly good peaks and valleys. Brad, how would you say this whiskey is balanced from start to finish? I would say it's decently well balanced. You know, the the nose gives you the notes that you're going to find on the taste and the finish. Um, I think that the finish has the much stronger flavor, though. It, it really comes roaring in at the end. So I'm going to give it a six and a half on balance. Yeah, I'm going to give it a, 
a six on the balance. I like like you said, it's not there's nothing in this that it, like really stands out as as too bad, but there's also nothing that really stands out as incredibly great. It's pretty consistent and in a lot of ways for me this is uh a little bit of an underwhelming experience from start to finish. I don't know why, but in my mind, I just remembered this being a way better whiskey than it ended up being. So I'm going to stick at a, a six on this. And that takes us to value. This is where we look at the price of the whiskey. And in the state of Ohio, this whiskey for a fifth will cost you $31.99 plus tax. So we're looking at a $32 bottle of whiskey, which is pretty standard for an Irish whiskey. It's a couple dollars more than regular Jameson. But it's still in that price range where you kind of get those mid-shelf Irish whiskeys. And I don't think this is a bad value. Like, I'm not crazy about the whiskey in the bottle, but they're also not charging more than I think they should be. So I'm actually going to give this a seven and a half on value. Yeah, I'm actually going to go ahead and give it the same thing, Bob. I think seven and a half is right where it ought to be on value. It's not... You know, it's a unique whiskey that, you know, maybe if it was priced $25 to $27, I might give it a higher score. But yeah, this is right about where I would expect it to be. All right. So that's bringing me out to a 31 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing you out to? This is actually bringing me out to a 36 out of 50. Oh, wow. This actually performed a lot better with you than I thought it would. Yeah, I I really liked it. The the only part that kind of struggled for me was the front end initial taste. But outside of that, the 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 emotions that it leaves you with on the finish are nice and warm and I really enjoy it a lot. So that puts our average out to a 67 out of 100 or a 33 and a half out of 50. Yeah, this is this is kind of like right at that two-thirds mark, and I think that's a good place for it. I don't know that I would necessarily go for this whiskey very often, um, but I also can't say a lot of bad things about it. I can imagine that some people would really, really love this whiskey. I do think it's worth trying at a bar, and it's not a disappointment in, in like an epic sense of the word. So, Brad, would you recommend this whiskey? Yeah, I really would. Uh, if you are a huge fan of stouts, I would warn you to say that it's less like a stout than I kind of hoped it would be. Yeah. The IPA version tasted more like an IPA than this version tastes like a stout. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. And I think it might just be because the stout has some of those like darker characters that kind of round out a whiskey, whereas the IPA just kind of like injected a bunch of bitterness into that whiskey. So this one definitely has a more subtle addition to it. I would recommend this in like a glass. I would say like, you know, if you're at a bar and you've never tried it and a short pour is like $5, absolutely. Give it a try. It's worth trying. I don't know if I would recommend going out and buying a bottle of it unless you know for a fact that you would really, really like it. But again, $32 is not a ton to drop on a whiskey like this. So hesitantly, I will say that I also recommend this whiskey. Well, and I will say this. If you enjoy Jameson... Go to your local liquor store and you can purchase a small sampler pack that includes regular Jameson, the IPA edition, and the Stout edition. I think it costs like 10 to $15. No, not even that. We got these. They're, they're just like shot sizes. They're 50 mils and you get three of them and it was $5.99. Oh. I spent $6 on this sampler. So that's why we actually bought two of them because I was like, all right, I'll drop... Brad's friendship is worth $6. I'll get him one of his own samples, too. Yeah, easily. I I don't know if I'd go quite that far for Bob. But if you're listening and you think, man, I would like to try these, each one has enough for about one glass, 
And it's a perfect way to try three different versions of Jameson and it's all for $6. So yeah. go out and try it. You know, check it out. It's worth your time to check them out. All right, Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about The Breakfast Club? Uh, I actually don't really feel like it, Bob. Uh, all right, cool. I'm done. All right, we'll see you next week. Okay, cool. All right, so that was Jameson Caskmates Stout Edition, a whiskey that we both kind of liked. And it sounds like, in a lot of ways, it's being paired with a movie that we both kind of like. Yeah. Is that an I, accurate representation, Brad? I, I think that's a perfect representation. I kind of like this movie. Like, there's certain parts of it that are, you know, he knocked the ball out of the park. But for the most part, he's just barely hitting it back to the pitcher. Like, I, I, it's a struggle of a movie. Yeah, and I think that we really need to get into some of the problematic stuff. But before we just, like, rag on this movie, what, what did you really enjoy about it? What do you think Hughes did well? Is there a specific scene? Is there a specific line that you really resonated with? Well, I kind of already, you know, hinted at this earlier, but I think that Hughes is at his finest in this movie when he sits down with the characters, he puts the camera in their face, and he allows them to express, you know, why they are the way that they are. And he uses the ruse of saying, oh, well, this is why I'm here at detention to get into why I am the way that I am for each of these characters. And when he is delving into who they are as, as teenagers, as children, I think that's where the movie really shines because you form these personal connections with characters. And I honestly think that one of the reasons this movie has such enduring popularity is because of that 15 to 20 minute scene near the end where you get to know these characters. And I feel like people formed such deep emotional attachments with them based on those 20 minutes of self-revelation that you see these characters in a new light and you really forgive a lot of the sins of the rest of the movie. Yeah, honestly, like when when you look back on this movie, if you haven't watched it in a couple of years, I can almost guarantee that the things that you're thinking about are either those kind of like music video elements that Brad and I were talking about, the, the dance sequence, the hallway sequence, or that really great 20 minute stretch where they're all sitting around talking about why they got in detention and, and what's going on in their home lives. And I think Hughes knew that's the centerpiece of the movie because it feels like in a lot of ways, he doesn't quite know how to get there. Like he's he's taking his time and kind of meandering because he knows that's the crux of the movie. And then as soon as that scene's done, it's almost like, all right, cool. Time to uh, time to wrap this up now, because the movie seems to end really quickly after that scene. But Brad, I think you're right. Like that is. That is the part of the movie that works the best. And it's the part of the movie that I think really catapults it into being a film that people remember. Yeah. And then when you're done, you know, making sure that people don't forget about you, you just shove your fist in the air and freeze frame and you're set and you just walk your way into posterity. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we get into our, our nitpicks and our critiques of the movie, I do want to say, like, I love when Hughes is using the characters to play off of each other. He's kind of like pairing them up into dyads or, or triads where you see like three three people ganging up on one person or like when they first walk into detention and they all sit down 
Claire and Andy sit next to each other because they know each other because they're both popular kids. And when they first look back at Ali Sheedy, when she comes in and sits down and like, you know, with a huff, they look at each other and they're like stifling laughter. And it's really interesting to watch how different characters will pair up with other characters to point out the things they see as hypocritical in a third character. And when Hughes is doing stuff like that, I think it's really masterful writing. The problem is, I think he doesn't do it enough. Yeah, and I I think one of my other scenes that I think is one of my favorite parts of this movie is at the start of the movie, you can tell that nobody in the room really likes each other outside of possibly Andy and Claire. And yet, even with that in mind, when Bender, you know, breaks the door so that it can't stay open and he sits down, they all kind of have this unspoken agreement that we're not going to turn Bender in because while we might not like each other, Vernon is the real enemy. And and we're we're not going to turn him over, you know, turn Bender over to the enemy. And so I really love how Hughes kind of plays them off of each other as not liking each other and yet still having a common enemy that they can all band together and fight against. Yeah, for sure. Well, Brad, I think it's time for us to get into the hard stuff about this movie. I think that, look, movies were different in 1985. I understand that. But. What is actually being depicted on the screen in a lot of instances made me very, very uncomfortable. And it's not just that it hasn't aged well. It's that I think that some of the scenarios that they put the characters in, and it's particularly the two female characters, are just wrong. And they are for sure sexual harassment, if not sexual abuse and assault in some of these cases. I'm really wondering, Brad, when you look at the two female characters in this movie, I see a lot of problematic stuff. And I think we need to get into as much of it as we can, you know, with the time that we have left. But what did you struggle with when you were watching this film? Well, I know that there's going to be a lot of different things, primarily Bender legitimately sexually assaulting Claire. Um, But one of the things that I disliked the most was the end of the movie when Claire takes Allie or sorry, Allison off to the side and does her makeup And suddenly that's what makes her an attractive character Yes, yes. to Andy. And I go, wait a second. I thought that this movie was about listening to people talk about who they are and then accepting them for who they want to be. Yes. And yet, you know, at the end, there's like, well, no, but we're going to put some makeup on you. And all of a sudden, Emilio Estevez is going to say, well, I never really saw you before. And. And wow, let's, you know, date now and make out in front of our parents without them saying anything about it. And I, it's just a super weird inclusion into this movie. Like, it, it feels like it belies the entire message that had been sent throughout the rest of the film. It absolutely does. And it's infuriating to me. And I think, you know, the stuff with Claire is more immediately problematic. But the stuff with Allison is just as problematic because what they're saying is like, She doesn't have worth until she's approved of by Andy. So, like, first of all, why does Allison need a makeover? Like, even when Claire's giving her a makeover and putting stuff like she's putting eyeliner and eyeshadow and everything else on her. And she's like, you look so much better without that black stuff on your face. And she's like, oh, hey, I like that black stuff. So, like, does she even really want this makeover? And secondly, like, is this the end of Greece? Why do we need to make over a female character for the approval of a male character? Why are they making it out like she has to be presented to Andy for his approval? Like, it, that whole storyline doesn't work at all. And it seems so forced. And it's just like, they have no chemistry. 
they have no understanding of each other aside from the fact that their parents suck. And it just seems like what they're saying is that Allison has to fundamentally change everything about herself to continue to be approved of and attractive. And I really hated it. Well, I I will back off a little bit from from that kind of final comment, Bob. I, I think that, you know, she jokingly kind of endearingly steals the uh I don't know, something off of his jacket and walks off with it. And so I think there is kind of a sense at the end of the movie that like she's still herself. She's still slightly a kleptomaniac and and steals things and she's still going to be a little bit awkward and weird. And but it's because of her physical transformation that Emilio is now okay with it. And that's the problem that I have is like, well, if you weren't attracted to her in the first place, then like, why is it that a makeover is just going to make you go, oh, wow, well, now I want to be with this girl. Right. And so I, I don't know. Maybe I can play devil's advocate for a second and just say, in the end, physical looks do matter. And it, it helps to be attracted to somebody physically to also be attracted to them emotionally. So I, I don't think that that's the worst thing to say about a human being, you know, that they find another person physically attractive. But it does seem like it doesn't jive with the rest of the message that the movie is trying to send. And I think that's a really great segue into talking about Claire, because what they do to Claire is like deeply disturbing to me. If I'm being honest with you, her character comes into the room, you know, and and does she deserve to have some of her pretentiousness and her arrogance torn down? Absolutely. But the movie doesn't really distinguish between her arrogance getting torn down and like everything else about her getting torn down. She admits to being a virgin and it kind of gives Brian some comfort. But aside from that, like what this movie is saying is that like there's something it it seems like the movie saying there's something wrong with her for that, even though they said out loud, there's nothing wrong with that. Like the places that they take her character are like she goes into the room that Bender is locked in and has like, you know, seven minutes in heaven with him. And after just advocating for it being okay for her to be a virgin, she apparently has some sort of like sexual awakening, like I need to do this with Bender right now. And what makes it even more problematic is that for the entire movie, Bender's been harassing and assaulting her, asking her questions about have you ever been felt up? It's incredibly uncomfortable. And then hiding under the table and God knows what happens under that table. And it kind of seems like they give Claire some Stockholm Syndrome. Like she's being abused by this person. And then at the end of the movie, like she gives into what he wants. And it just strikes me as so incredibly disturbing and out of character for like what any rational human being would do. And I don't think you can chalk it up to like, well, they're teenagers and blah, blah, blah. It's just something that I don't think John Hughes should have even meddled in because it creates so many issues for this movie. Yeah, it really kind of reminds me of my point that I made earlier that Bender tries to morph everyone into an image of himself. And you see it most clearly with Claire in the fact that, you know, by the end of the movie, she just seems complicit in anything that Bender would want to do. And if anything, she feels like she wants to be more like him. And and that's kind of a struggle for me because, like I said, the whole message of the movie seems to be we all have problems, we all have struggles, and it's okay to be who we want to be. Yeah. And yet Claire d- isn't allowed to do that. Claire is forced to become this person who suddenly wants to date Bender, which, if we're being honest, seems to implicitly mean that she'll be having sex with Bender in the next few weeks. 
Yeah, and, for, and if they already didn't do it in that closet. It, yeah, exactly. And so you're kind of like, is that really who she wanted to be? I don't know. We didn't spend enough time with her to really know that. All we know is that she was kind of proud of being a virgin and didn't want to just give it up willy-nilly. And then all of a sudden, nope, we're just okay to move on from it after this guy sexually assaulted me and emotionally abused me. Well, and I think one of my problems with it is, too, like, they don't really make the male characters grow or change hardly at all, especially Bender and Andy. It seems like these female characters are changing to suit their whims. And I think that's my big struggle with it. And there's actually a really, really great article that Molly Ringwald wrote last year uh, for The New Yorker when they were releasing this movie in in the Criterion Collection. They came out with this really beautiful Blu-ray for the movie, and they asked Molly Ringwald to kind of write a, a retrospective on it. And she talks about how she sat down with her own daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, and she basically started the article by saying, look, I recognize that 10 is way too young to be watching this movie, but I need I wanted to see how this movie played with the younger generation. And she she talks about how as it went on, it became harder and harder to justify some of the things that she saw on screen and that she was kind of complicit in putting on screen. And it's this really beautiful look back by her over her own career and talking about how, you know, I owe my whole career to John Hughes. He was a lovely human being, but he also is guilty of having moments like this in his movies that there is no way to justify. There's the racism of uh, 16 Candles, and then there's the kind of sexual assault here in The Breakfast Club. And I do think that, you know, we can talk all we want about how maybe the music, for the most part, hasn't hold up, how some of the filmmaking hasn't held up. But what really, really doesn't hold up is that this movie came out in a culture where I don't think a lot of people thought about, talked about, even noticed the kind of stuff that was happening to the female characters in this movie. And I think, you know, if this movie were to ever get remade, obviously that whole subplot would be eliminated. But I think deservedly so. It just doesn't make for a good movie and it provides way too many issues to reconcile. Yeah, it just leaves a really sour taste in your mouth when you're done watching the movie. You know, Bender walks off screen and, well, he freeze frames at the end of the movie on screen and you leave and you're kind of like he has this triumphant pose and you feel like you accomplished something. But for me, there's a sense of like, man, you, you might have accomplished something, but at what cost? And like you said, Bob, it doesn't seem like the male characters really change all that much. I I just struggle with this movie and the taste that it leaves in my mouth when I'm done watching it. Absolutely. And I think it's time for us to give our final scores on the movie, Brad. You know, I, I really struggle with this because this is an important movie in my coming of age. And that 20 minute sequence is, I think, 10 out of 10 filmmaking. But everything else around it is at best an eight and at worst a two. There's some really, really rough sequences in this movie. And that's not even to mention the sort of philosophically problematic stuff we've been talking about here. At the end of the day, I think this movie is too short. It's an hour and a half long. It seems like kind of like a trailer for a better movie. It seems like they could have gone deeper with these characters. They really could have explored more. And Hughes was kind of content to just leave it where it was and wrap up. And so, Brad, I think I'm going to give this movie a seven out of ten. Like it's a it's a good movie. I understand how it can be some people's favorite movie, but I think when you really sit down and think about it, what we love about this movie is one small sequence of the film. And when you look at the whole thing, it just doesn't hold up the way that I remembered it. Yeah, Bob, I'm kind of right there with you. I do not have a nostalgic connection to this movie. 
And that could be a bad thing or a good thing, but I'm going to give this movie a six out of 10. I, I think it's, it's very good at doing certain things. I really enjoy Brian's comedy and humor. I think that it's, it's delivered perfectly, you know, and I, I obviously love the scene where they finally get down to brass tacks and talk about what's going on in their lives. But overall, there is a lot of problematic elements in this movie, and I really can't give it anything higher than a six. So that brings our average out to a six and a half. And here's the thing. I, I really hope that when people see us post our final scores on social media, that it sparks you to listen to the episode. Because if you just saw Breakfast Club six and a half or, you know, Eternal Sunshine, like five point seven five, whatever we gave that. I think sometimes people just think that we're like incredibly dismissive of the movies and that we we don't really get into talking about it. And that's not the case here. Like, you know, Brad, you said you didn't have a, a nostalgic connection to this movie. I do. And I'm still looking back on it now and thinking like, you know, I have a nostalgic connection and it's important to me, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I think that it is a great film. And there's there's a difference to be made and there's a conversation to be had here. So hopefully when you see our scores posted, that sparks you to want to come listen to the conversation, to engage in the conversation. And part of that is getting on social media, letting us know what you think of the movie and of our scores and of our review of it. So if you want to get in contact with us, please get on Twitter, get on Instagram, get on Facebook. You can find us at Film Whiskey. Or you can give us a phone call. Let us know what you have to think about The Breakfast Club. Uh, tell us what you have to think about Bender as a character and, and his treatment of Molly Ringwald and, and all of these things. Our phone number is 216 216- 800-5923. Once again, that phone number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back talking about Christopher Nolan's 2014 film, Interstellar. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. I have a question for you. I have an answer for you. <laughs> Is the moral of this whole movie that uh, weed brings us together? It might be. I mean, because honestly, like they smoke weed and then they immediately are like, hey, listen, like, let's get down to brass tacks here. Yeah. Let me yeah. tell you why. Like they, they don't they have no bonding whatsoever. And then they all smoke weed and they're like, hey, you're OK, man. Yeah. So is it the weed or is it the fact that they did something illegal together? I don't know. They did a lot of illegal stuff. They <laughs> broke windows defaced statues like yeah i have a feeling they're going to be they're all going to be in detention again next week well i excuse me oh it kind of it kind of tastes nice on the burp back <laughs> i mean that's that's like an important part we should probably add that it should be as, another category yeah yeah that should be one of our categories how does it taste when you burp it back up 20 minutes later <laughs> <laughs>